Section 4 of London Labour and the London Poor, Volume 2, by Henry Mayhew. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gillian Hendry. Of the street sellers of second-hand weapons. The sale of second-hand pistols, for to that weapon the street sellers or hawkers trade in arms seems confined, is larger than might be cursorily imagined. There must be something seductive about the possession of a pistol, for I am assured by persons familiar with the trade that they have sold them to men who were ignorant, when first invited to purchase, how the weapon was loaded or discharged, and seemed half afraid to handle it. Perhaps the possession imparts a sense of security. The pistols which are sometimes seen on the street stalls are almost always old, rusted or battered, and are useless to anyone except to those who can repair and clean them for sale. There are three men now selling new or second-hand pistols, I am told, who have been gunmakers. This trade is carried on almost entirely by hawking to public houses. I heard of no one who depended solely upon it. But this is the way, one intelligent man stated to me, if I am buying second-hand things at a broker's or in Petticoat Lane or anywhere, and there's a pistol that seems cheap, I'll buy it as readily as anything I know, and I'll soon sell it at a public house, or I'll get it raffled for. Second-hand pistols sell better than new by such as me. If I was to offer a new one, I should be told it was some brummagen, slop rubbish. Or there's a little silver plate let into the wood of the pistol, and a crest or initials engraved on it. I've got it done sometimes. There's a better chance of sale for people think it's been made for somebody of consequence that wouldn't be fobbed off with an inferior thing. I don't think I've often sold pistols to working men, but I've known them join in raffles for them, and the winner has often wanted to sell it back to me, and has sold it to somebody. It's tradesmen that buy, or gentlefolks, if you can get at them. A pistol's a sort of a plaything with them. On my talking with a street dealer concerning the street trade in second-hand pistols, he produced a handsome pistol from his pocket. I inquired if it was customary for men in his way of life to carry pistols, and he expressed his conviction that it was, but only when travelling in the country and in possession of money or valuable stock. I gave only seven shillings sixpence for this pistol, he said, and have refused ten shillings sixpence for it, and I shall get a better price, as it's an excellent article, on some of my rounds in town. I bought it to take to Ascot races with me, and have it with me now, but it's not loaded, for I'm going to Moleseyhurst, where Hampton races are held. You're not safe if you travel after a great muster at a race by yourself, without a pistol. Many a poor fellow like me has been robbed, and the public hear nothing about it, or say it's all gammon. At Ascot, sir, I trusted my money to a booth-keeper I knew, as a few men slept in his booth and he put my bit of tin with his own under his head where he slept, for safe-keeping. There's a little doing in second-hand pistols to such as me, but we generally sell them again. Of second-hand guns, or other offensive weapons, there is no street sale. A few life-preservers, some of gutta-percha, are hawked, but they are generally new. Bullets and powder are not sold by the pistol-hawkers, but a mould for the casting of bullets is frequently sold along with the weapon. Of these second-hand pistol-sellers, there are now, I am told, more than there were last year. I really believe, said one man laughing, but I heard a similar account from others. 
People were afraid the foreigners coming to the great exhibition had some mischief in their noddles, and so a pistol was wanted for protection. In my opinion, a pistol's just one of the things that people don't think of buying till it's shown to them, and then they're tempted to have it. The principal street sale, independently of the hawking to public houses, is in such places as Ratcliffe Highway, where the mates and petty officers of ships are accosted and invited to buy a good second-hand pistol. The wares thus vended are generally of a well-made sort. In this traffic, which is known as a straggling trade, pursued by men who are at the same time pursuing other street callings, it may be estimated, I am assured, that there are twenty men engaged, each taking as an average one pound a week. In some weeks a man may take five pounds, in the next month he may sell no weapons at all. From thirty to fifty per cent is the usual rate of profit, and the yearly street outlay on these second-hand offensive or defensive weapons is one thousand and forty pounds. One man who did a little in pistols told me that twenty-five or thirty years ago, when he was a boy, his father sometimes cleared two pounds a week in the street sale and hawking of second-hand boxing gloves, and that he himself had sometimes carried the gloves in his hand, and pistols in his pocket for sale, but that now boxing gloves were in no demand whatever among street buyers, and were a complete drag. He used to sell them at three shillings a set, which is four gloves. Of the street sellers of second-hand curiosities. Several of the things known in the street trade as curiosities can hardly be styled second-hand with any propriety but they are so styled in the streets, and are usually vended by street merchants who trade in second-hand wares. Curiosities are displayed, I cannot say temptingly, except perhaps to a sanguine antiquarian, for there is a great dinginess in the display, on stalls. One man whom I met wheeling his barrow in High Street, Camden Town, gave me an account of his trade. He was dirtily rather than meanly clad, and had a very self-satisfied expression of face. The principal things on his barrow were coins, shells, and old buckles, with a pair of the very high and wooden-heeled shoes, worn in the earlier part of the last century. The coins were all of copper, and certainly did not lack variety. Among them were tokens, but none very old. There was the head of Charles Marquis Cornwallis, looking fierce in a cocked hat, while on the reverse was Fame with her trumpet and a wreath, and banners at her feet, with the superscription, his fame resounds from east to west. There was the head of Wellington, with the date 1811, and the legend of Vincit Amor Patri. Also, the Right Honourable W. Pitt, Lord Warden Sinke Ports, looking courtly in a bag wig, with his hair brushed from his brow, into what the curiosity seller called a topping. This was announced as a Sinke Ports token, payable at Dover, and was dated 1794. Wellington's, said the man, is cheap. That one's only a halfpenny. But here's one here, sir, as you seem to understand coins, as I hope to get tuppence for, and will take no less. It's a J. Lackington, 1794, you see, and on the back there's a fame, and round her is written, and it's a good specimen of a coin, halfpenny of Lackington, Allen and Co., cheapest bookmakers in the world. That's scarcer and more valueler than Wellington's or Nelson's either. Of the current coin of the realm, I saw none older than Charles II, and but one of his reign, and little legible. 
Indeed, the reverse had been ground quite smooth, and someone had engraved upon it Charles Dryland Tunbridge. Reader's Note Tunbridge is spelled T-U-N-B-R-I-D-G. End note. A small E over the G of Tunbridge perfected the orthography. This, the street seller said, was a love token as well as an old coin, and them love tokens was getting scarce. Of foreign and colonial coins there were perhaps sixty. The oldest I saw was one of Louis Fifteenth of France and Navarre, 1774. There was one also of the République Française, when Napoleon was first consul. The colonial coins were more numerous than the foreign. There was the one penny token of Lower Canada, the one quarter Anna of the East India Company, the half stiver of the colonies of Essequibo and Demerara, the halfpenny token of the province of Nova Scotia, and so on and so on. There were also counterfeit half crowns and bank tokens worn from their simulated silver to rank copper. The principle on which this man priced his coins, as he called it, was simple enough. What was the size of a halfpenny he asked a penny for? The size of a penny coin was tuppence. It's a difficult trade as mine, sir, he said, to carry on properly, for you may be so easily taken in, if you're not a judge of coins and other curiosities. The shells of this man's stock in trade he called conks and king conks. He had no clamps then, he told me, but they sold pretty well. He described them as two shells together, one fitting inside the other. He also had sold what he called African cowries, which were as big as a pint pot, and the smaller cowries, which were money in India, for his father was a soldier and had been there and saw it. The shells are sold from one penny to two shilling sixpence. The old buckles were such as used to be worn on shoes, but the plate was all worn off, and such like curiosities, the man told me, got scarcer and scarcer. Many of the stalls which are seen in the streets are the property of adjacent shop or storekeepers, and there are not now, I am informed, more than six men who carry on this trade apart from other commerce. Their average takings are 15 shillings weekly each man, about two-thirds being profit, or £234 in a year. Some of the stands are in Great Wild Street, but they are chiefly the property of the second-hand furniture brokers. Of the street sellers of second-hand telescopes and pocket glasses. In the sale of second-hand telescopes, only one man is now engaged in any extensive way, except on mere chance occasions. Fourteen or fifteen years ago, I was informed, there was a considerable street sale in small telescopes at a shilling each. They were made at Birmingham, my informant believed, but were sold as second-hand goods in London. Of this trade, there is now no remains. The principal seller of second-hand telescopes takes a stand on Tower Hill or by the Coal Exchange, and his customers, as he sells excellent glasses, are mostly seafaring men. He has sold and still sells telescopes from £2.10 shillings to £5 each, the purchasers generally trying them, with strict examination, from Tower Hill or on the Custom House Quay. There are, in addition to this street seller, six and sometimes eight others who offer telescopes to persons about the docks or wharfs who may be going some voyage. These are as often new as second-hand, but the second-hand articles are preferred. This, however, is a Jewish trade, 
which will be treated of under another head. An old opera glass, or the smaller articles, best known as pocket glasses, are occasionally hawked to public houses and offered in the streets, but so little is done in them that I can obtain no statistics. A spectacle seller told me that he had once tried to sell two second-hand opera glasses at two shillings sixpence each in the street, and then in the public houses, but was laughed at by the people who were usually his customers. Opera glasses, they said. Why, what did they want with opera glasses? Wait until they had opera boxes. He sold the glasses at last to a shopkeeper. Of the street sellers of other miscellaneous second-hand articles. The other second-hand articles sold in the streets I will give under one head, specifying the different characteristics of the trade when any striking peculiarities exist. To give a detail of the whole trade, or rather of the several kinds of articles in the whole trade, is impossible. I shall therefore select only such as are sold the more extensively, or present any novel or curious features of second-hand street commerce. Writing desks, tea caddies, dressing cases, and knife boxes used to be a ready sale, I was informed, when good second-hand, but they are got up now so cheaply by the poor fancy cabinet makers who work for the slaughterers or furniture warehouses and for some of the general dealing swag shops that the sale of anything second-hand is greatly diminished. In fact, I was told that as regards second-hand writing desks and dressing cases, it might be said there was no trade at all now. A few, however, are still to be seen at miscellaneous stalls and are occasionally, but very rarely, offered at a public house used by artisans who may be considered judges of work. The tea caddies are the things which are in best demand. Working people buy them, I was informed, and working people's wives. When women are the customers, they look closely at the lock and key as they keep my uncle's cards there. Note, pawnbroker's duplicates. End note. One man had lately sold second-hand tea caddies at ninepence, one shilling, and one shilling threepence each, and cleared two shillings in a day when he had stock and devoted his time to this sale. He could not persevere in it if he wished, he told me, as he might lose a day in looking out for the caddies. He might go to fifty brokers and not find one caddy cheap enough for his purpose. Brushes are sold second-hand in considerable quantities in the streets, and are usually vended at stalls. Shoe brushes are in the best demand, and are generally sold, when in good condition, at one shilling the set, the cost to the street seller being eightpence. They are bought, I was told, by the people who clean their own shoes, or have to clean other people's. Clothes brushes are not sold to any extent, as the hard brush of the shoe set is used by working people for a clothes brush. Of late, I am told, second-hand brushes have sold more freely than ever, they were hardly to be had just when wanted in a sufficient quantity for the demand by persons going to Epsom and Ascot races who carry a brush of little value with them to brush the dust gathered on the road from their coats. The coster girls buy very hard brushes, indeed mere stumps, with which they brush radishes. These brushes are vended at the street stalls at a penny each. In stuffed birds, for the embellishment of the walls of a room, there is still a small second-hand street sale, but none now in images or chimney-piece ornaments. Why, said one dealer, I can now buy new figures for ninepence, such as not many years ago cost seven shillings, 
so what chance of a second-hand sale is there? The stuffed birds which sell the best are starlings. They are all sold as second-hand, but are often made up for street traffic. An old bird or two, I was told, in a new case, or a new bird in an old case. Last Saturday evening, one man told me he had sold two long cases of starlings and small birds for two shillings sixpence each. There are no stuffed parrots or foreign birds in this sale, and no pheasants or other game, except sometimes wretched old things which are sold because they happen to be in a case. The street trade in second-hand lasts, is confined principally to Petticoat and Rosemary Lanes, where they are bought by the garret masters in the shoemaking trade, who supply the large wholesale warehouses, that is to say, by small masters who find their own materials and sell the boots and shoes by the dozen pairs. The lasts are bought also by mechanics, street sellers and other poor persons who cobble their own shoes. A shoemaker told me that he occasionally bought a last at a street stall, or rather from street hampers in Petticoat and Rosemary Lanes, and it seemed to him that second-hand stores of street lasts got neither bigger nor smaller. I suppose it's this way, he reasoned. The garret master buys lasts to do the slop-snobbing cheap, mostly women's lasts, and he dies, or is done up and goes to the great house, and his lasts find their way back to the streets. You notice, sir, the first time you're in Rosemary Lane, how little a great many of the lasts have been used, and that shows what a terrible necessity there was to part with them. In some there's hardly any peg-marks at all. The lasts are sold from a penny to threepence each, or twice that amount in pairs, rights and lefts, according to the size and the condition. There are about twenty street last-sellers in the second-hand trade of London. At least twenty, one man said after he seemed to have been making a mental calculation on the subject. Second-hand harness is sold largely, and when good is sold very readily. There is, I am told, far less slop-work in harness-making than in shoe-making, or in the other trades, such as tailoring, and many a lady's pony harness, it was said to me by a second-hand dealer, goes next to a tradesman, and next to a costermonger's donkey, and if it's been good leather to begin with, as it will if it was made for a lady, why, the traces'll stand clouting and patching and piecing and mending for a long time, and they'll do to cobble old boots last of all, for old leather'll wear just in treading when it might snap at a pool. Give me a good quality to begin with, sir, and it's serviceable to the end. In my inquiries among the costermongers, I ascertained that if one of that body started his donkey, or rose from that to his pony, he never bought new harness, unless it were a new collar, if he had a regard for the comfort of his beast, but bought old harness, and did it up himself, often using iron rivets or clenched nails to reunite the broken parts, where, of course, a harness-maker would apply a patch. Nor is it the costermongers alone who buy all their harness second-hand. The sweep, whose stock of soot is large enough to require the help of an ass and a cart in its transport, the collector of bones and offal from the butchers' slaughterhouses or shops, and the many who may be considered as co-traders with the costermonger class, the greengrocer, the street coal-seller by retail, the salt-sellers, the gravel and sand-dealer, a few have small carts, all indeed of that class of traders buy their harness second-hand, and generally in the streets. 
The chief sale of second-hand harness is on the Friday afternoons in Smithfield. The more especial street sale is in Petticoat and Rosemary Lanes, and in the many off-streets and alleys which may be called the tributaries to those great second-hand marts. There is no sale of these wares in the Saturday night markets, for in the crush and bustle generally prevailing there at such times, no room could be found for things requiring so much space as sets of second-hand harness, and no time sufficiently to examine them. "'There's so much to look at, you understand, sir,' said one second-hand street trader, who did a little in harness as well as in barrows. "'If you wants a decent set, and don't grudge a shilling or two, and I never grudges them myself when I has them, so that it takes a little time, you must see that the buckles has good tongues, and it's a sort of joke in the trade that a bad tongue's a damned bad thing, and that the panel of the pad ain't as hard as a board. Flocks is the best stuffing, sir, and that the bit, if it's rusty, can be polished up, for an animal no more likes a rusty bit in his mouth than we likes a musty bit of bread and iron. Oh, a man as treats his ass as an ass ought to be treated, and it's just the same if he has a pony. Can't be too particular. If I had my way, I'd act a law making people particular about osses and asses' shoes. If your boot pinches you, sir, you can sing out to your bootmaker, but an ass can't blow up a farrier. It seems to me that in these homely remarks of my informant there is, so to speak, a sound practical kindliness. There can be little doubt that a fellow who maltreats his ass or his dog maltreats his wife and children when he dares. Clocks are sold second-hand, but only by three or four foreigners, Dutchmen or Germans, who hawk them and sell them at two shillings sixpence, or three shillings each, Dutch clocks only being disposed of in this way. These traders, therefore, come under the head of street foreigners. Aye, one street seller remarked to me, it's only Dutch now, as is second-handed in the streets, but it'll soon be Americans. The swags is some of them hung up with slicks. Note, so he called the American clocks, meaning the Sam Slicks, in reference to Mr. Justice Halliburton's work of that title. End note. They're hung up with them, sir, and no relation whatsoever. Note, pawnbroker. End note. I'll give a printed character of them. Note, a duplicate. End note. And so they must come to the streets, and jolly cheap they'll be. The foreigners who sell the second-hand Dutch clocks sell also new clocks of the same manufacture, and often on tally, one shilling a week being the usual payment. Cartouche boxes are sold at the miscellaneous stalls, but only after there has been what I heard called a tower sale. Note, sale of military stores. End note. When bought of the street sellers, the use of these boxes is far more peaceful than that for which they were manufactured. Instead of the receptacles of cartridges, the divisions are converted into nail boxes, each with its different assortment, or contain the smaller kinds of tools, such as all blades. These boxes are sold in the streets at a halfpenny or a penny each, and are bought by jobbing shoemakers more than by any other class. Of the other second-hand commodities of the streets, I may observe that in trinkets the trade is altogether Jewish. In maps with frames it is now a non-entity, and so it is with fishing rods, cricket bats, and so on. In umbrellas and parasols, the second-hand traffic is large, but those vended in the streets are nearly all done up for street sale by the class known as mush, or more properly, mushroom fakers, that is to say, the makers or fakers, note facere, the slang fakement being simply a corruption of the Latin facimentum, 
end note, of those articles which are similar in shape to mushrooms. I shall treat of this class, and the goods they sell, under the head of street artisans. The collectors of old umbrellas and parasols are the same persons as collect the second-hand habiliments of male and female attire. The men and women engaged in the street commerce carried on in second-hand articles are in all respects a more mixed class than the generality of street sellers. Some hawk in the streets goods which they also display in their shops, or in the windowless apartments known as their shops. Some are not in possession of shops, but often buy their wares of those who are. Some collect or purchase the articles they vend. Others collect them by barter. The itinerant crockman, the root seller, the glazed table cover seller, the hawker of spars and worked stone, and even the costermonger of the morning, is the dealer in second-hand articles of the afternoon and evening. The costermonger is, moreover, often the buyer and seller of second-hand harness in Smithfield. I may point out again, also, what a multifariousness of wares passes in the course of a month through the hands of a general street-seller. At one time new goods, at another second-hand, sometimes he is stationary at a pitch vending lots or swag toys, at others itinerant, selling braces, belts and hose. I found no miscellaneous dealer who could tell me of the proportionate receipts from the various articles he dealt in, even for the last month. He did well in this, and badly in the other trade, but beyond such vague statements there is no precise information to be had. It should be recollected that the street sellers do not keep accounts, or those documents would supply references. It's all headwork with us, a street seller said, somewhat boastingly, to me, as if the ignorance of bookkeeping was rather commendable. Of second-hand store shops. Perhaps it may add to the completeness of the information here given concerning the trading in old refuse articles, and especially those of a miscellaneous character, the manner in which, and the parties by whom, the business is carried on, if I conclude this branch of the subject by an account of the shops of the second-hand dealers. The distance between the class of these shopkeepers and of the stall and barrow-keepers I have described is not great. It may be said to be merely from the street to within doors. Marine store dealers have often in their start in life been street sellers, not unfrequently costermongers, and street sellers they again become if their ventures be unsuccessful. Some of them, however, make a good deal of money in what may be best understood as a hugger-mugger way. On this subject I cannot do better than quote Mr. Dickens, one of the most minute and truthful of observers. Quote, the reader must often have perceived, in some by-street, in a poor neighbourhood, a small dirty shop, exposing for sale the most extraordinary and confused jumble of old, worn-out, wretched articles that can well be imagined. Our wonder at their ever having been bought is only to be equalled by our astonishment at the idea of their ever being sold again. On a board, at the side of the door, are placed about twenty books, all odd volumes, and as many wine-glasses, all different patterns, several locks, an old earthenware pan full of rusty keys, two or three gaudy chimney ornaments, cracked of course, the remains of a lustre without any drops, a round frame like a capital O which has once held a mirror, a flute, complete with the exception of the middle joint, a pair of curling irons, and a tinder-box. In front of the shop window are ranged some half-dozen high-backed chairs 
with spinal complaints and wasted legs. A corner cupboard, two or three very dark mahogany tables with flaps like mathematical problems, some pickle bottles, some surgeon's ditto, with gilt labels and without stoppers, an unframed portrait of some lady who flourished about the beginning of the 13th century by an artist who never flourished at all, an incalculable host of miscellanies of every description, including armour and cabinets, rags and bones, fenders and street door knockers, fire irons, wearing apparel and bedding, a hall lamp and a room door. Imagine, in addition to this incongruous mass, a black doll in a white frock with two faces, one looking up the street and the other looking down, swinging over the door. A board with the squeezed-up inscription, Dealer in Marine Stores, in lanky white letters, whose height is strangely out of proportion to their width, and you have before you precisely the kind of shop to which we wish to direct your attention. Although the same heterogeneous mixture of things will be found at all these places, it is curious to observe how truly and accurately some of the minor articles which are exposed for sale, articles of wearing apparel, for instance, mark the character of the neighbourhood. Take Drury Lane and Covent Garden, for example. This is essentially a theatrical neighbourhood. There is not a potboy in the vicinity who is not, to a greater or less extent, a dramatic character. The errand boys and Chandler's shopkeepers' sons are all stage-struck, they get up plays in back kitchens hired for the purpose, and will stand before a shop window for hours, contemplating a great staring portrait of Mr. Somebody or other, of the Royal Coburg Theatre, as he appeared in the character of Tongo the Denounced. The consequence is that there is not a marine store shop in the neighbourhood which does not exhibit for sale some faded articles of dramatic finery, such as three or four pairs of soiled buff boots, with turnover red tops, heretofore worn by a fourth robber, or fifth mob, a pair of rusty broadswords, a few gauntlets, and certain resplendent ornaments, which, if they were yellow instead of white, might be taken for insurance plates of the Sunfire office. There are several of these shops in the narrow streets and dirty courts, of which there are so many near the national theatres, and they all have tempting goods of this description, with the addition, perhaps, of a lady's pink dress covered with spangles, white wreaths, stage shoes, and a tiara like a tin lamp reflector. They have been purchased of some wretched supernumeraries or sixth-rate actors, and are now offered for the benefit of the rising generation, who on condition of making certain weekly payments, amounting in the whole to about ten times their value, may avail themselves of such desirable bargains. Let us take a very different quarter and apply it to the same test. Look at a marine store dealer's in that reservoir of dirt, drunkenness and drabs. Thieves, oysters, baked potatoes and pickled salmon, Ratcliffe Highway. Here the wearing apparel is all nautical. Rough blue jackets with mother-of-pearl buttons, oilskin hats, coarse checked shirts and large canvas trousers that look as if they were made for a pair of bodies instead of a pair of legs, are the staple commodities then there are large bunches of cotton pocket handkerchiefs, in colour and pattern unlike any one ever saw before, with the exception of those on the backs of the three young ladies without bonnets who passed just now. The furniture is much the same as elsewhere, with the addition of one or two models of ships, and some old prints of naval engagements in still older frames. In the window are a few compasses, a small tray containing silver watches in clumsy thick cases, 
and tobacco boxes, the lid of each ornamented with a ship or an anchor or some such trophy. A sailor generally pawns or sells all he has before he has been long ashore, and if he does not, some favoured companion kindly saves him the trouble. In either case, it is an even chance that he afterwards unconsciously repurchases the same things at a higher price than he gave for them at first. Again, pay a visit with a similar object to a part of London as unlike both of these as they are to each other. Cross over to the Surrey side and look at such shops of this description as are to be found near the King's Bench prison and in the rules. How different and how strikingly illustrative of the decay of some of the unfortunate residents in this part of the metropolis. Imprisonment and neglect have done their work. There is contamination in the profligate denizens of a debtor's prison. Old friends have fallen off. The recollection of former prosperity has passed away. And with it all thoughts for the past, all care for the future. First, watches and rings, then cloaks, coats, and all the more expensive articles of dress have found their way to the pawnbrokers. That miserable resource has failed at last, and the sale of some trifling article at one of these shops has been the only mode left of raising a shilling or two to meet the urgent demands of the moment. Dressing cases and writing desks, too old to pawn but too good to keep, guns, fishing rods, musical instruments, all in the same condition, have first been sold and the sacrifice has been but slightly felt. But hunger must be allayed, and what has already become a habit is easily resorted to when an emergency arises. Light articles of clothing, first of the ruined man, then of his wife, at last of their children, even of the youngest, have been parted with piecemeal. There they are, thrown carelessly together, until a purchaser presents himself, old and patched and repaired, it is true, but the make and materials tell of better days, and the older they are, the greater the misery and destitution of those whom they once adorned. End quote. Of the street sellers of second-hand apparel, the multifariousness of the articles of this trade is limited only by what the uncertainty of the climate, the caprices of fashion, or the established styles of apparel in the kingdom have caused to be worn, flung aside, and reworn as a revival of an obsolete style. It is to be remarked, however, that of the old-fashioned styles, none that are costly have been revived. Laced coats and embroidered and lapidated waistcoats have long disappeared from second-hand traffic, the last stage of fashions, and indeed from all places but court or fancy balls and the theatre. The great mart for second-hand apparel was in the last century in Monmouth Street, now, by one of those arbitrary and almost always inappropriate changes in the nomenclature of streets termed Dudley Street, Seven Dials. Monmouth Street finery was a common term to express tawdriness and pretense. Now Monmouth Street, for its new name is hardly legitimated, has no finery. Its second-hand wares are almost wholly confined to old boots and shoes, which are vamped up with a good deal of trickery so much so that a shoemaker, himself in the poorer practice of the gentle craft, told me that blacking and brown paper were the materials of Monmouth Street cobbling. Almost every master in Monmouth Street now is, I am told, an Irishman, and the great majority of the workmen are Irishmen also. There were a few Jews and a few Cockneys in this well-known street a year or two back, 
but now this branch of the second-hand trade is really in the hands of what may be called a clan. A little business is carried on in second-hand apparel, as well as boots and shoes, but it is insignificant. The headquarters of this second-hand trade are now in Petticoat and Rosemary Lanes, especially in Petticoat Lane, and the traffic there carried on may be called enormous. As in other departments of commerce, both in our own capital, in many of our older cities, and in the cities of the continent, the locality appropriated to this traffic is one of narrow streets, dark alleys, and most oppressive crowding. The traders seem to judge of a rag-fair garment, whether a cotton frock or a ducal coachman's greatcoat, by the touch, more reliably than by the sight. They inspect, so to speak, with their fingers more than their eyes. But the business in Petticoat and Rosemary Lanes is mostly of a retail character, the wholesale mart, for the trade in old clothes has both a wholesale and retail form, is in a place of especial curiosity, and one of which, as being little known, I shall first speak. Of the Old Clothes Exchange The trade in second-hand apparel is one of the most ancient of callings, and is known in almost every country, but anything like the Old Clothes Exchange of the Jewish Quarter of London, in the extent and order of its business, is unequalled in the world. There is indeed no other such place, and it is rather remarkable that a business occupying so many persons and requiring such facilities for examination and arrangement should not until the year 1843 have had its regulated proceedings. The old clothes exchange is the latest of the central marts established in the metropolis. Smithfield, or the cattle exchange, is the oldest of all the markets. It is mentioned as a place for the sale of horses in the time of Henry II. Billingsgate, or the fish exchange, is of ancient but uncertain era. Covent Garden, the largest fruit, vegetable and flower exchange, first became established as the centre of such commerce in the reign of Charles II. The establishment of the borough and Spitalfields markets, as other marts for the sale of fruits, vegetables and flowers, being nearly as ancient. The Royal Exchange dates from the days of Queen Elizabeth, and the Bank of England and the Stock Exchange from those of William III, while the present premises for the Corn and Coal Exchanges are modern. Were it possible to obtain the statistics of the last quarter of a century, it would perhaps be found that in none of the important interests I have mentioned has there been a greater increase of business than in the trade in old clothes. Whether this purports a high degree of national prosperity or not, it is not my business at present to inquire. And be it as it may, it is certain that, until the last few years, the trade in old clothes used to be carried on entirely in the open air, and this in the localities which I have pointed out in my account of the trade in old metal. Note, see page 10, volume 2. End note. As comprising the Petticoat Lane District, the old clothes trade was also pursued in Rosemary Lane, but then, and so indeed it is now, this was but a branch of the more centralised commerce of Petticoat Lane. The headquarters of the traffic at that time were confined to a space not more than ten square yards, adjoining Cutler Street. The chief traffic elsewhere was originally in Cutler Street, White Street, Carter Street, and in Harrow Alley, the districts of the celebrated Rag Fair. The confusion and clamour before the institution of the present arrangements were extreme. Great as was the extent of the business transacted, 
people wondered how it could be accomplished, for it always appeared to a stranger that there could be no order whatever in all the disorder. The wrangling was incessant, nor were the trade contests always confined to wrangling alone. The passions of the Irish often drove them to resort to cuffs, kicks and blows, which the Jews, although with a better command over their tempers, were not slack in returning. The East India Company, some of whose warehouses adjoined the market, frequently complained to the city authorities of the nuisance. Complaints from other quarters were also frequent, and sometimes as many as two hundred constables were necessary to restore or enforce order. The nuisance, however, like many a public nuisance, was left to remedy itself, or rather it was left to be remedied by individual enterprise. Mr. L. Isaac, the present proprietor, purchased the houses which then filled up the back of Phil's buildings, and formed the present Old Clothes Exchange. This was eight years ago. Now there are no more policemen in the locality than in other equally populous parts. Of Old Clothes Exchanges there are now two, both adjacent, the one first opened by Mr. Isaac being the most important. This is 100 feet by 70, and is the mart to which the collectors of the cast-off apparel of the metropolis bring their goods for sale. The goods are sold wholesale and retail, for an old clothes merchant will buy either a single hat or an entire wardrobe, or a sack full of shoes. I need not say pairs, for odd shoes are not rejected. In one department of Isaac's Exchange, however, the goods are not sold to parties who buy for their own wearing, but to the old clothes merchant, who buys to sell again. In this portion of the mart are 90 stalls, averaging about 6 square feet each. In another department which communicates with the first, and is two-thirds of the size, are assembled such traders as buy the old garments to dispose of them, either after a process of cleaning, or when they have been repaired and renovated. These buyers are generally shopkeepers, residing in the old clothes districts of Marylebone Lane, Holywell Street, Monmouth Street, Union Street, Borough, Saffron Hill, Field Lane, Drury Lane, Shoreditch, the Waterloo Road, and other places of which I shall have to speak hereafter. The difference between the first and second class of buyers above mentioned is really that of the merchant and the retail shopkeeper. The one buys literally anything presented to him, which is vendable, and in any quantity, for the supply of the wholesale dealers from distant parts, or from exportation, or for the general trade of London. The other purchases what suits his individual trade, and is likely to suit regular or promiscuous customers. In another part of the same market is carried on the retail old clothes trade to anyone, shopkeeper, artisan, clerk, costermonger or gentleman. This indeed is partially the case in the other parts. Yea, indeed, said a Hebrew trader, whom I conversed with on the subject, I shall be glad to shell you one coat, sir. This one is just your size. It is very cheap and was made by one tip-top schnip. Indeed, the keenness and anxiety to trade, whenever trade seems possible, causes many of the frequenters of these marts to infringe the arrangements as to the manner of the traffic, though the proprietors endeavour to cause the regulations to be strictly adhered to. The second exchange, which is a few yards apart from the other, is known as Simmons and Levi's Clothes Exchange, and is unemployed for its more especial business purposes, except in the mornings. The commerce is then wholesale, 
for here are sold collections of unredeemed pledges in wearing apparel, consigned there by the pawnbrokers, or the buyers at the auctions of unredeemed goods, as well as drafts from the stocks of the wardrobe dealers, a quantity of military or naval stores, and such-like articles. In the afternoon the stalls are occupied by retail dealers. The ground is about as large as the first-mentioned exchange, but is longer and narrower. In neither of these places is there even an attempt at architectural elegance, or even neatness. The stalls and partitions are of unpainted wood, the walls are bare, the only care that seems to be manifested is that the place should be dry. In the first instance, the plainness was no doubt a necessity from motives of prudence, as the establishments were merely speculations, and now everything but business seems to be disregarded. The old clothes exchange have assuredly one recommendation as they are now seen, their appropriateness. They have a threadbare patched and second-hand look. The dresses worn by the dealers and the dresses they deal in are all in accordance with the genius of the place. But the eagerness, crowding and energy are the grand features of the scene, and of all the many curious sights in London there is none as picturesque from the various costumes of the buyers and sellers none so novel and none so animated as that of the old clothes exchange business is carried on in the wholesale department of the old clothes exchanges every day during the week and in the retail on each day except the hebrew sabbath saturday the jews in the old clothes trade observe strictly the command that on their sabbath day they shall do no manner of work for on a visit i paid to the exchange last saturday not a single Jew could I see engaged in any business. But though the Hebrew Sabbath is observed by the Jews and disregarded by the Christians, the Christian Sabbath, on the other hand, is disregarded by Jew and Christian alike, some few of the Irish excepted, who may occasionally go to early Mass and attend at the exchange afterwards. Sunday, therefore, in Rag Fair, is like the other days of the week, Saturday excepted. Business closes on the Sunday, however, at two instead of six. On the Saturday, the keen Jew traders in the neighbourhood of the exchanges may be seen standing at their doors after the synagogue hours, or looking out of their windows dressed in their best. The dress of the men is for the most part not distinguishable from that of the English on the Sunday, except that there may be a greater glitter of rings and watchguards. The dress of the women is of every kind, becoming, handsome, rich, tawdry, but seldom neat. Of the wholesale business at the Old Clothes Exchange A considerable quantity of the old clothes disposed of at the exchange are bought by merchants from Ireland. They are then packed in bales by porters, regularly employed for the purpose, and who literally build them up, square and compact. These bales are each worth from £50 to £300, though seldom £300, and it is curious to reflect from how many classes the pile of old garments has been collected, how many privations have been endured before some of the habiliments found their way into the possession of the old clothesman, what besotted debauchery put others in his possession, with what cool calculation others were disposed of, how many were procured for money, and how many by the tempting offers of flowers, glass, crockery, spars, table covers, lace or millinery. What was the clothing which could first be spared when rent was to be defrayed, or bread to be bought, and what was treasured until the last? 
in what scenes of gaiety or gravity in the opera house or the senate had the perhaps departed wearers of some of that heap of old clothes figured through how many possessors and again through what new scenes of middle-class or artisan comfort had these dresses passed or through what accidents of genteel privation and destitution and lastly through what necessities of squalid wretchedness and low debauchery every kind of old attire from the highest to the very lowest i was emphatically told was sent to ireland some of the bales are composed of garments originally made for the labouring classes these are made up of every description of colour and material cloth corduroy woollen cords fustian moleskin flannel velveteen plaids and the several varieties of these substances in them are to be seen coats greatcoats jackets trousers and breeches but no other habiliments such as boots shirts or stockings i was told by a gentleman who between forty and fifty years ago was familiar with the liberty and poorer parts of dublin that the most coveted and the most saleable of all second-hand apparel was that of leather breeches worn commonly in some of the country parts of england half a century back and sent in considerable quantities at that time from london to ireland these nether habiliments were coveted because as the dublin sellers would say they would wear forever and look elegant after that buckskin breeches are now never worn except by grooms in their liveries and gentlemen when hunting so that the trade in them in the old clothes exchange and their exportation to ireland are at an end the next most saleable thing i may mention incidentally vended cheap and second-hand in dublin to the poor irishman of the period i speak of was a wig and happy was the man who could wear two one over the other some of the irish buyers who are regular frequenters of the london old clothes exchange take a small apartment often a garret or a cellar in petticoat lane or its vicinity and to this room they convey their purchases until a sufficient stock has been collected among these old clothes the irish possessors cook or at any rate eat their meals and upon them they sleep i did not hear that such dealers were more than ordinarily unhealthy though it may perhaps be assumed that such habits are fatal to health what may be the average duration of life among old clothes sellers who live in the midst of their wares i do not know and believe that no facts have been collected on the subject but i certainly saw among them some very old men other wholesale buyers from ireland occupy decent lodgings in the neighbourhood decent considering the locality in filled buildings a kind of wide alley which forms one of the approaches to the exchange are eight respectable apartments almost always let to the irish old clothes merchants tradesmen of the same class come also from the large towns of england and scotland to buy for their customers some of the left-off clothes of london nor is this the extent of the wholesale trade bales of old clothes are exported to belgium and holland but principally to holland of the quantity of goods thus exported to the continent not above one half perhaps can be called old clothes while among these the old livery suits are in the best demand the other goods of this foreign trade are old serges duffels carpeting drugget and heavy woollen goods generally of all the descriptions which i have before enumerated as partial of the second-hand trade of the streets old merino curtains and any second-hand decorations of fringes woollen lace and so on are in demand for holland 
twelve bales averaging somewhere about one hundred pounds each in value, but not fully one hundred pounds, are sent direct every week of the year from the old clothes exchange to distant places, and this is not the whole of the traffic, apart from what is done retail. I am informed on the best authority that the average trade may be stated at £1,500 a week, all the year round. When I come to the conclusion of the subject, however, I shall be able to present statistics of the amount turned over in the respective branches of the old clothes trade, as well as of the number of the traffickers, only one-fourth of whom are now Jews. The conversation which goes on in the old clothes exchange during business hours apart from the larking of the young sweet stuff and orange or cake sellers, is all concerning business. But there is, even while business is being transacted, a frequent interchange of jokes, and even of practical jokes. The business talk, I was told by an old clothes collector, and I heard similar remarks, is often to the following effect. "'How much is this here?' says the man who comes to buy. "'One pound five, replies the Jew seller. I won't give you above half the money. Half the money, cries the salesman. I can't take that. But above the sixteen shillings that you offer now will you give for it? Will you give me eighteen? Well, come, give us your money. I've got my rent to pay. But the man says, I only bid you twelve shillings sixpence, and I shan't give no more. And then, if the seller finds he can get him to spring or advance no further, he says, I suppose I must take your money, even if I lose by it. You'll be a better customer another time. Note, this is still a common deal, I am assured, by one who began the business at thirteen years old, and is now upwards of sixty years of age. The petticoat laner will always ask at least twice as much as he means to take. End note. For a more detailed account of the mode of business as conducted at the old clothes exchange, I refer the reader to page 368 of volume 1. Subsequent visits have shown me nothing to alter in that description, although written in one of my letters in the Morning Chronicle nearly two years ago. I have merely to add that I have there mentioned the receipt of a halfpenny toll, but this I find is not levied on Saturdays and Sundays. I ought not to omit stating that pilfering one from another by the poor persons who have collected the second-hand garments and have carried them to the old clothes exchange to dispose of, is of very rare occurrence. This is the more commendable, for many of the wares could not be identified by their owner, as he had procured them only that morning. If, as happens often enough, a man carried a dozen pairs of old shoes to the exchange, and one pair were stolen, he might have some difficulty in swearing to the identity of the pair purloined. It is true that the Jews and crockmen and others who collect, by sale or barter, masses of old clothes, note all their defects very minutely, and might have no moral doubt as to identity. Nevertheless, the magistrate would probably conclude that the legal evidence, were it only circumstantial, was insufficient. The young thieves, however, who flock from the low lodging-houses in the neighbourhood, are an especial trouble in Petticoat Lane, where the people robbed are generally too busy, and the articles stolen of too little value, to induce a prosecution, a knowledge which the juvenile pilferer is not slow in acquiring. Sometimes, when these boys are caught pilfering, they are severely beaten, especially by the women, 
who are aided by the men if the thief offers any formidable resistance or struggles to return the blows. End of section 4